This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question, what do we make of the story of Jephthah, one of the Bible's worst stories? And to help us, we have author and speaker Mike Rater join us. Mike is the director of the Centre for Biblical Preaching, and he's an in-demand speaker across Australia and around the world. He was the author of the 2004 Christian Book of the Year, Stirrings of the Soul, and he joins me now. Please welcome Mike Rater. We're here to talk about the Bible today, Mike. Yes. And you're an avid reader of the Bible. I love the Bible. Yes. Now, and we're today looking at the story of Jephthah. A tale of a man sacrificing his own daughter. Now, would you describe this as one of the Bible's worst stories? <laughs> well, it's not one of the most pleasant stories in the Bible, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, is it the worst story? It's, it's a real story. It's, uh, look, this book, Judges, is just, it's a warts and all story of a part, a, a time in Israel's history. Yep. And uh, history stories are like that. They often, they, they, we all have our worst story. Every nation has their worst stories. Yeah. We have, in Australia, we have a time with our indigenous people, which was a worse time. Yeah. Uh, I guess America has the black slavery, their, their worst time. Every nation has their, their, their worst time. And this is a period in Israel's worst time. So yes, it's a, it's, it's a worse story, but it's a, it's a real story. It's a in your face, this is how life is story. Yeah, so that's why you're happy to discuss one absolutely, of these. Absolutely, absolutely. Now before we go start, just how do you pronounce his name? Jephthah well, or any, Jephthah? Jeph- any, any way we like. <laughs> uh, probably, I just call him Jeff. <laughs> Maybe Jephtha. 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 But, I, okay. but I, I could be wrong. I'll try. I'll try well, we, to see how we go. We'll, we'll meet him one day. We can ask him then. Okay, okay, right. How to pronounce it. Jeff. Now, even though today's topic does deal with an awful story, yeah. we do try to have a bit of fun. You have fun more than I do, <laughs> from my memory. Today we're talking with Mike Rater about the story of Jephtha, one of the worst stories of the Bible. And this story revolves around a foolish vow or promise that Jephthah made. So, Mike, in today's quiz, I'm going to test you on how well you know foolish words spoken by politicians. You have a lot to choose from. We've got, got plenty of material. Okay. Okay, so which, question one. There's two questions, okay. multiple choice. Okay. Which of these US electoral promises was not true? Was it A, in the 1908 presidential campaign, candidate Teddy Roosevelt pledged that if elected, he would not seek office again? Or was it B, in 2012, lesser-known presidential candidate from New Hampshire, Vermin Supreme, made the promise that if elected, he would give every US citizen a pony? In the 2008 presidential campaign, Sarah Palin promised to be more articulate in public speaking and to be the candidate a nation is proud, proud of? Or was it D, Jello Biafra in his mayoral campaign in San Francisco in the 1970s where he promised to make all businessmen wear clown suits? Well. So which of those was... I've got to say, the pony one sounds so ludicrous, you couldn't have made it up. Right. So I'm going to go for the man and his pony. Uh, well, that was actually true. There we go. The answer, correct answer is actually C, Sarah Palin. Oh, I got it wrong. You just got it wrong. Oh, yes. okay. Sorry, yes. <laughs> okay. uh, Sarah Palin, in fact, promised to be more rogue uh, <laughs> rather than to be more articulate. Okay. I'm not sure what it means to be yes. more rogue. How did I miss that? Yes, that's right. Okay, question two. Okay, I'm doing well. In, two, in 2002, former US Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld said, five days, five weeks, or five months but it certainly isn't going to last any longer than that. What was he speaking about? Was it A, 
the test career of Australian cricketer Mike Hussey? <laughs> was it B, Kim Kardashian's latest marriage? So was it C, the campaign length for the next US federal election? Or D, the Iraq war? Well, I know that Donald was a big fan of Kim Kardashian. I know that. <laughs> right. But I, I think uh, I'm going to go for number D. And I think you're correct as well. So um, congratulations, Mike. In our foolish words spoken by politicians quiz, you got one out of two correct. You passed. Big round of applause. Congratulations, Mike. You passed. Now, Mike, a foolish promise is at the heart of this Bible story that we're talking at today. But before we get to Jephthah's vow, maybe can you give us some background? Right. Uh, the story of Jephthah occurs in the Old Testament book of the Bible, Judges. Yes. So can you tell us a bit about the book of Judges? Okay, it's the, uh, it's the seventh book in the Old Testament, which uh, is basically the history of a nation called Israel. Mm -hmm. And the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, speak of the birth of that nation Israel, its growth as a nation, the captivity in Exodus, the famous story of the, the Red Sea, they're being set free, and they're coming to the land that God has promised them, the promised land Canaan. Yep. And when the Pentateuch ends in Deuteronomy, they're on the edge of the land. Yep. Joshua, they move into the land and semi-occupy it. Now we come to Judges, which is a period around 200 years in Israel's history of semi-occupancy of the land. It's a, it's a book caught between two, two big starts for Israel. The first big start when they enter the land, and then uh, 200 years later, the big start when they have finally a monarchy, the king Saul and David. Yeah. So between that those two big starts is this period of, at times, anarchy in, in Israel, both morally and spiritually, in the land which they semi-occupy. And this book records those fairly dark 200 years. Okay. Well, the story of Jephthah begins in Judges 10.6 with, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So what's the significance of this? Well, they've, they've gone into the land and they've been told to keep themselves separate from the nations of the land. Mm -hmm. I've got four kids. They've grown up now. But when your kids are small, and going and going to school, the one thing you want for them is to make smart choices with their friends. Mm -hmm. Get in the wrong crowd, and it messes them up. Bad company spoils good morals. That's God's. He's a father to Israel. His concern is if they get involved with the tribes, it'll corrupt them, and that's that's what happens. Mm -hmm. They begin to compromise uh, both morally and spiritually. They begin to worship foreign idols, and God becomes angry with yeah. them. And God then sets out to discipline them and bring them back to himself. Okay, yeah. So, but the Israelites were not following the, the law of the Lord. Well, some, somewhere down the track, they've lost, to some degree, the law of God and what God required. As we see this in the story of Jephthah, they've lost that, and they've begun to compromise. So God raises up a nation to attack them, to make them wake up and come to their senses. Mm. So what happens? So you mentioned well, that's, that's, It's like that movie Groundhog Day, uh, Rob, where you know, a man's trapped in the same day, the cycle day after day. That's Israel. They compromise with a nation. Uh, God sends a, a foreign nation to subdue them, to attack them, to reprimand them. They're oppressed for years. Finally, in their, their despair, they cry out to God, who relents, mm -hmm. and then sends a judge, a, a military leader, to come along, lead their army, win victory, and set them free. And while the judge is alive, there's a time of peace and prosperity. He dies, and then it's, it's Groundhog Day. Again, they compromise. Again, a nation rises up. It just goes round and round again and again. And the cycle gets deeper and deeper and darker and darker as the book progresses. Mm -hmm. Their sin becomes worse, and the judges become less and less impressive as, as men themselves. Right. And so this refrain, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, is some way symbolic of this, this, this descent. This, this continual descent, this, this spiral downwards into moral and spiritual chaos and compromise. Okay. Yeah. And so that, has that happened? This has happened with, uh, with Jephthah as well, that the, the Israelites have 
disobeyed. That's right. They've descended. Uh, and they need a judge. There's a group called the Ammonites. They had begun under God to oppress Israel or Gilead. And they've got an army, but they, the army lacks a strong leader and they need, need a leader. And they turn to this guy, Jephthah. Yeah. So Jephthah is introduced in Judges 11.1. 1, and he says, introduced like this, Jephthah the, the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So what do you think is the significance of Jephthah's or Jeff's family Jeff's. background? Well, we're all shaped, aren't we, by our family background. I, I guess there's some conjecture here, but here's this guy whose who's, who's mother is a prostitute. Whose dad, well, I guess he's his dad. With a prostitute, you can't be sure. They have lots of men, so, mm -hmm. but I guess it's his dad. So he grows up all his life with the stigma of being the son of a prostitute. He has to bear that. Then the father has other sons, who I guess from his, from his wife. They despise Jephthah and kick him out. So all his life, he has over him this stigma of being the son of a prostitute, a reject, worthless. That's how he's shaped in his thinking. He takes off and joins up, not surprisingly, with other men who are. Rejects. That's right. uh, so I, I, look, I've got to say, Rob. They're scoundrels. I, I, just, scoundrel, I, just, I just think this book is a tragedy. This story is a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. Here's this man, this, this wretched background. I do feel, I've got to say, a, a degree of sympathy for Jephthah, mm -hmm. given his background and how awful it was and what he had to bear as a man. Mm. And then he hangs around with these scoundrels. These, these, like, who, these scoundrels. Who, who, who could these scoundrels be? Like, well, I guess. Footballers? Probably rugby league players, I guess. Uh, I, I, just, I guess some of the, the local thugs, the local, we'd say the local mafia, maybe yeah. mercenaries. We might call them bush rangers. We don't know. But look, I think, uh, as I said, if you've grown up being told you're a worthless reject, it's not surprising you end up with other people of, of like manner. And being kicked out, he has no inheritance, he has no land, he can't be a farmer, he's got to earn a living, and he turns, as some people do in desperation, to crime, mm. Mm. I, I presume. But do these, just Jephthah's background though, do they justify or explain his actions? Well, no, not justify. I mean, he hasn't lost his moral compass. He know, Jephthah knows right and wrong. But I think to some degree it does explain it, why he ended up in this lifestyle, because the other options were close to him to some degree. Of all the judges in the Bible, no one talks more of the Lord than Jephthah. I think this man doesn't just know about God, this man knows God. I mean, he's lost some, his, his way morally to a degree, but he, he knows God, he knows right and wrong, and he's chosen, he's made some very unwise choices. I mean, he describes him there as a mighty warrior, so he's got plenty of muscles. One thing he can do is he can fight. <laughs> you would, you'd want him on your side in, in, a, in a battle. He, he can fight. He can do that very well. And that's why Israel turns to him. Yeah, so that's what happens next. I mean, so he's got plenty of, bra sorry, plenty of muscles, but not so many brains. Well, yeah, he's got plenty of muscles. I, mean, I don't think he's Sylvester Stallone. I don't think, I don't think he's a dummy. Sorry, right. Sylvester. Um, <laughs> he's a big uh, fan of the show, yeah, I'm sure. Right. It's, just, it's, it's interesting. Having rejected him, Israel now has to come back to him eating a big slice of humble pie. Mm. Yeah with a tail between the legs and saying, listen, Nassie Jephthah, we need your help. Yeah, so why, why is that? What's happened? What's, well, what's they've, they've kicked him out. Yep. And now they realise they need him. They're being oppressed by the Ammonites. They need a leader. And this guy, for his failings, is, a, is a leader. He's got he can that. lead an army. He can fight. And they need right now someone to lead their army against this nation. And he's the one man they turn, they've got to turn to. So is there similarity then between the way uh, Gilead treats Jephthah to how Israel has treated God? I think that's striking. I think that's, in the author's mind, that's deliberate. You do see those... So Israel rejects God. Israel rejects Jephthah. Israel's oppressed. 
because of God, then later they're oppressed in the time of Jephthah. Israel turns to God to help them, as they do Jephthah. God rebuffs Israel, says, no, I've helped you again and again. No, Jephthah rebuffs Israel. Finally, God relents and helps them as Jephthah does. So again and again, you see these links between how Israel treats God and how they treat Jephthah and how he responds. Mm. He's not a God figure, but you do see these parallels. Mm -hmm. So Jephthah, muscle man. Muscle man. About to go into battle. Then we come to the heart of the story of Jephthah in verse 30, where he makes a very bold deal with God. It says, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So why do you think he made this vow? I wish I knew. I mean, really... I don't know. Um, well, look, he's had this uh, encounter with God, which is spiritual. He's been just—he's been blessed by the Spirit. Maybe in a state of ecstasy spiritually, he, he loses his brains. He makes a deal with God. It seems you give me victory, I'll give you whatever comes out of the house. Mm-hmm. But what did he think would come out of the house? A bull? Do you keep bulls in your, in your, or, or sheep? What, what was he thinking? I just don't know what was in his mind when he made that. Rash statement, though, to say that, we've all said things and done things in the heat of the moment which were stupid. Now, fortunately, most don't have the repercussions this one does. No. But we've all done dumb things, and this ranks as one of the most tragic. Mm. So it's a bit like, well, obviously politicians have made foolish promises before. One or two. This is is in in that sort of spirit. There's perhaps more thought through, maybe not. Um, like a pony. Like, like the pony, <laughs> a rash promise. So this year, I just think it's rash and foolish and, uh, yeah, what he was thinking, one does wonder. Mm. Now, the verse in verse 29 says that then the spirit of the mm. Lord came on Jephthah. So it appears that Jephthah made this vow with a spirit on him. So what do you think happened? Well, we find again and again in Judges, before the battle, God's spirit comes on the great warrior, Gideon and Samson, to give them, I guess, special strength or courage to fight the battle. So he's, he's been strengthened by God to fight. But in that moment, as I said before, maybe in that moment of excitement, he just he blurts out something which later he comes to regret big time. Mm. The fact that, that Jephthah made this vow with the spirit on him, does that indicate that God has endorsed the vow or that he's made the vow in, in accordance with the desires of God? Well, of course not. One reason God said to Israel, don't mess with the, with the, the nations is because they did human sacrifice. God's opposed to that. Don't do that. Don't become like them. So it's very clear that's not what God wants. And the Spirit was there to anoint him for battle, not to, to make some stupid promise. Right. Okay. So how do you feel then when you read this vow? Like It's obviously a tragic story, but how do you feel? I, I think I just feel terrible pity. It's, it's an awful, awful story. Uh, you, you've got to just feel your heart aches for him and for his daughter because when she comes out of the house, he realizes what he's done. Then it's folly, of course, in, in thinking he can't turn back from that. that he, he, he feels he's trapped by this vow. He's trapped into, presumably, having to sacrifice his daughter. He's, he, when he's not, actually. And vows are important, Rob. I mean, we live, we've talked about broken promises of politicians. I mean, uh, today we break vows fairly lightly. You know, I want to be a man of my word. So just the lawyers in the room have just looked up at you there. Just you there. <laughs> well, they did. Vows are a solemn thing. I solemnly swear. It's a, it's a serious thing to make a vow. On the other hand, God knows that we're weak and we say things we regret. So in the law itself, with the allowance to break a vow, you could do. Leviticus 27. You can pay money. And if you, if you can't keep a vow or don't, you, you, there, wasn't a, there was a way out for Jephthah. Now, why he didn't take it, I don't know. Maybe he didn't know that law. 
but there was a way out. God did not want human sacrifice. Well, we'll get to that in a second. As the tragedy unfolds and Jephthah does win the battle, yep. Israel subdued Ammon. Then he comes back home and Judges 11, 34 to 35 says these tragic words. Yeah. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child, except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. Hmm. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. So how do you feel well, when you read that? I feel just great sorrow for both him and his daughter, knowing he could break that vow. Look, there is, there is in the text, Rob, some ambiguity. You could read it as two sentences. Whatever comes out of the house, I would give to the Lord. Full stop. That is like later on, Hannah gives Samuel, her son, to the Lord, to dedicate to the Lord for his service. Full stop. I will offer a burnt sacrifice of, of a an, bull. So maybe it could be that. Uh, that would explain why later she, her daughter, his daughter, bewails her virginity, not her life, the fact she won't be a mother or wife. On the other hand, Jephthah's anguish is so deep, he is devastated. That suggests to me the traditional reading is the right one. He saw there an, an obligation to have his daughter in some sense sacrificed. That's how I think the more likely reading, because he's just, he's just, he's beyond words in grief. But couldn't God have let the Israelites lose? to save Jephthah's daughter? Well, <laughs> yes, yeah, well, but the point is, Rob, there was a way out for Jephthah. Had he, had he known the law and kept the law, there was a way out. God made provision for that. He could have added both the victory and the daughter. Just pay some money to cover the vow. There was an escape hatch for Jephthah, which for whatever reason he chose not, apparently he chose not to take. Now, prominent atheist Richard Dawkins comments about this incident and this yep. story. Uh, in his bestseller, The God Delusion. Now, he writes that God was obviously looking forward to the promised burnt offering. So was Dawkins right in saying that God delighted in the death of a child? God doesn't delight in the death of anyone, uh, Rob. God doesn't delight in the death of any person, any sinner. Of course he didn't. And God's been very clear that he finds child sacrifice abhorrent. And he doesn't even care too much for burnt sacrifices of bulls and goats. Uh, Micah says he's shown you what's good, what he wants of you, but to do justice to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And Jephthah should have known that, that what God wanted of him as God's, as the ruler of the people was to do justice and mercy, which means, of course, care for your daughter. He should have known that. No, God doesn't want that. God wants people of kindness, love, justice, and mercy. That's God's will in the Bible. If only you'd read the Bible more carefully, not so selectively. So you're saying that the Bible does condemn child sacrifice. So then why does God allow Jephthah to sacrifice his daughter? Good question. In the next chapter, Samson's wife is burnt alive. Why does God allow that? Why did God allow Jephthah's brothers to drive him out? Why, why, why? Why does God allow ISIS to behead people in the Middle East? Why did God allow that man in Orlando, Florida to kill nearly 50 people? Why, why, why? Why does God allow me <laughs> to do the things that I do and say the things I say which hurt people? Why does God allow that? Well, he could keep, I guess, breaking into our lives every five minutes and stopping us doing things. But God, God doesn't do that. He lets us see the repercussions of our wicked and foolish choices. But then he says, there's hope. You can turn to me. There's forgiveness and change. But God doesn't keep breaking in into our world. He allows us free will, but to bear the consequences of that. That we can see in the end our need for him. 
Now, there's another story in the Bible where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Mm. However, on that occasion, God intervened and Isaac's life was spared. Um, but God doesn't intervene to save Jephthah's daughter here. Is this the same reason he just outlined why? I think why so, that's that? right. Uh, it's, at times God intervenes and at times God chooses, chooses not to. And I, I don't know why. Uh, here was a man uh, far better than Jephthah called the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the best man who ever lived. A truly good man who was betrayed by people, flogged to near death died a horrific death, a gross act of injustice. And I'm sure the disciples at the time thought, God, do something. Why do you break in and save this innocent man? You know, you, you didn't save Jephthah's daughter, but this man's more innocent. Say, why do you break in and save him? And he didn't. God let this really good man die. And in the end, Rob, in this case, I'm glad he did. Because God knew from that death would come my forgiveness and life for the world. So sometimes, I don't know the answer to this question, Rob. It's, it's beyond me why God does or doesn't. I don't know that. Hmm. But I know sometimes God does allow evil things to happen for the longer good purpose of that event. Hmm. There's been said, well, because God saved, intervened and saved Isaac's life, he doesn't intervene here to save Jephthah's daughter. Is God therefore sexist? Well, n- no, God didn't intervene to save Jephthah from his wicked brothers. Of course not. Uh, in the beginning, God made them male and female. God, God is not sexist. But here's the thing, Rob. Uh, we are sexist, and the book of Judges holds up a mirror to our face and shows us what we're like. Yes, Judges describes a sexist nation. And, in fact, worse is to come in Judges than this. Yeah. Much worse is to come in the, tre- in the treatment of women. Far worse than this. Because that's, that's the world we live in. Right now, our big issue here in our, in our society is domestic violence. It's a huge issue. We are. We are sexist people. And the Bible doesn't brush that under the carpet, but shows that to us. And here's the thing, Rob. The Bible doesn't point the finger at other people and say, you're like that. The Bible says, I'm like that. Because the man who wrote this book was an Israelite about his own people. He's describing his own people as being sexist. If you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples come over as pretty unimpressive. Who wrote the Gospels? The disciples. (laughs) We as a church have a firm belief in our own failure and frailty. And we're not scared to say to the world, I'm guilty, I'm sexist, I'm racist, I'm violent, I'm disobedient, I'm, I, I am. And I, we don't deny that like, like others do. We don't do that. We, and there it is to read in the Bible in black and white. It's all there to read, all our worst failings. Because when you admit your failings, then there's hope for change. While you live in denial, you can't. When you admit your failings, you can change. And that's why there's hope in the Bible. Honesty, but hope. Now, questions come in, which asks, why would the Bible record this story? It condones the behavior. How do you respond? I I watch the news most nights on, uh, can I say this, the ABC? And it's full of violence from the moment it starts. Violence, crime, and sexist crime. Is the ABC condoning sex and violence? No, it's not. It's saying, this is our world. The Bible is saying this is what our world is like and clearly not condoning it. Look, there's an important refrain which binds the whole book of Judges together. And the refrain is this. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's true anywhere you go. It's true in government. If there's no strong government at the workplace, in the home, in the classroom, in the church, if there's no strong leadership, there's moral chaos. In Israel at that time, they had rejected God, their king, and these were the the consequences. 
And this is written here to us, to say to us, if we reject authority and God's authority, this will happen to us. So it says to us, as a nation, Australia, beware. Wake up, Australia. We're turning away from God, who made us, who knows what's best for us. And beware. Look what might happen. Look what happened back then. And learn from that. Not condoning it, saying, learn from that. You read this and you're horrified, and you should be. So is God. He's horrified by this. But learn from this and ensure in your life and your nation's life, there's a king and the true king, the Lord Jesus. So this is written more as a warning, not that's as right. a moral guide for us to follow. Of course. That's of course it's a warning to us, a warning to us to not be like this. But then at the same time, like Jephthah, who did it, you know, he did trust God to learn from from his few good points. But of course, to, 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 to learn from the profound moral failures of those around him. Yeah. So then you've alluded to it before, but then how does the coming of Jesus in the New Testament help us to understand Jephthah and the moral decay of Israel? It's striking how Jephthah, like really all the Bible stories of the Old Testament, really do point forward to Jesus, who was a bit like Jephthah. He too was a, a bastard brother. Uh, his 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 biological father wasn't wasn't Joseph, and he, he bore the stigma of, throughout his life of being a bastard, like, like Jephthah. He, he bore that same shame. He was a leader like Jephthah, but with these big differences. Uh, he didn't sacrifice the life of someone else for victory. He gave his own life that we could live and be free. And when he made a promise, it wasn't a promise that brought death. His promise had brought life. To a dying thief on the cross, Jesus promised him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a great promise. A promise made to all of us who are listening today. And his last words to his followers were, lo, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. When he made a promise, it was binding and it was a promise that gives life, not like Jephthah's. So Mike, the story of Jephthah, one of the Bible's worst stories, what are we to make of it? Well, uh, if we are wise, as we read this, then we learn from it, Rob. Uh, we learn about a God who despises the things we despise, human sacrifice, uh, violence, sexism. We, we, we despise these things. But we learn that when God rules our lives, then there'll be peace in our lives and righteousness and justice. And the more we cast him aside, the more we enter into the dangerous valley of, of moral chaos. So a wise person re, uh, reads this book and learns from it for their own life. And in the end, he's saying to us, but there is a king in Israel. There is a king in this world, a true king. And the book really calls us to turn to this king and let this king rule our lives forever, the Lord Jesus. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question. What do we make of the story of Jephthah from Judges 10.6? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Mike Rater. Thanks for listening to Bigger Questions. If you want to be part of the live audience or subscribe to the podcast, go to biggerquestions.org.